Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is James Walters, and I'd like to welcome you to the London School of Economics, where I'm the chaplain. <coughs> Yesterday was Holocaust Memorial Day, and we marked that here in the school on Friday when we had our annual interfaith Holocaust commemoration. We've done that for a number of years, firstly in recognition of the large number of students and staff who we have here whose families were directly affected by the Holocaust. Secondly, in recognition and some thanksgiving for the role that this school played during the 1930s in the welcoming of exiles from the European Jewish and Communist communities under the directorship of William Beveridge. And I think Professor Kulka is going to allude to that. And thirdly, because we think that there is a moral obligation for our whole school community to confront and retain the memory of such atrocities as took place under the Nazis and in subsequent genocides. So with that in mind, it is an extraordinary privilege for us to host this event this evening to promote what is an extraordinary book. Professor Otto Dov Kolka is a renowned historian of the Holocaust, holding the chair of Jewish, of Jewish history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But this is the first time that he has written of his own childhood experiences in Auschwitz. And he's going to be discussing those experiences in dialogue with historian Sirian Kershaw, so well known for his work on Nazi Germany, and particularly his monumental history, or his uh, monumental biography of Hitler. They're going to be in conversation for about an hour, and after that I'll come back up to the lectern uh, and take from you any questions that you may want to ask. This event is being recorded and we hope the podcast will be available online. So please put your mobile phones onto silent. You may want to tweet using the hashtag LSEKulka, or you may just want to sit and give your full attention to this. I read the book in one sitting last night, and these reflections are incredibly powerful uh, and a moving testimony to what Professor Kulka has entitled The Landscapes of the Metropolis of Death. So would you please join me in welcoming both him and Surian to the LSE. Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi and Dr. Walters. Um, may I say how privileged I am? to present uh, somewhat uh, unusual, non-scholarly book. Uh, this prestigious university and the audience, uh, right? Actually, I have an indirect connection, um, personal indirect connection to the London School of Economics. Um, my younger brother was born after the war. Uh, grew up and started his studies in Prague. And after the Soviet invasion of uh, Czechoslovakia in 68, 1968, he found refuge in Britain. And uh, he graduated here in the classes of the, 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 the uh, distinguished philosopher. Karl Popper, maybe longer. Uh, 
he um, then uh, wrote his PhD at Jeru in Jerusalem. And after the restoration of democracy in Prague, in uh, the Czech Republic, he returned to Prague and is teaching now philosophy and aesthetics there. So it somehow connects uh, LSE with Jerusalem and with Prague, our native uh, city. Well, I wish to take this opportunity to, to, to express my deep gratitude to the editor-in-chief of the Penguin Press, Simon Winder, who is with us here, and to his splendid staff for not only producing the first edition of my book, which is so beautifully designed, as some of you could see. Uh, but but, but the, the, the open horizon for, for, for this book uh, to editions as many other uh, European languages and worldwide. And all those translations, all those editions appear almost simultaneously. Uh, in, uh, in January, February, in the, the, those three months uh, we, since uh, the first edition appeared. Well, so my warmest thanks uh, to all who participated in this exciting project in this country and abroad. A short while before I, I left Jerusalem, I got the news that it will be translated into Japanese. Well, I hope I owe uh, this rewarding connection with Penguin and uh, all that followed it. Uh, the one wonderful person who is one of the greatest historians of our time. And this, we have a long-standing long intellectual uh, friendship. Um, and uh, that's Ian Kershaw, Sir Ian Kershaw. Um, as I mentioned, we, 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 we have long-standing dialogue in our scholarly work, in our research as well, and, and then he was one of the first to read the manuscript of this book. And it was Ian who encouraged me to decide to publish my landscapes of the metropolis of death. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's an enormous uh, privilege, as you can imagine, for me to be invited to take part in this event tonight and to help to present this remarkable, very short but absolutely remarkable book to you. And it's my job here, really, to um, prompt Dov to talk about various aspects of his, of his book and no more. Um, and he wants to begin by reading a passage about the family camp, the Familienlager in Auschwitz, which had been, um, he, 
he and his mother had been deported to Theresienstadt in Czechoslovakia in, the, in 1942. And then um, in a year later, so at the age of 10, they were sent on to Auschwitz. And remarkably, arriving in Auschwitz were then not, as was usual, put on the selection ramp and saw between those who were selected for work and those who were selected for the gas chambers, but then put into this family camp, which was unique in Auschwitz, and a very strange setup where the prisoners were allowed to wear their own clothes, they didn't have their heads shaven and so on, and at the age of 10 until the age of 12 he was in this in Auschwitz, but not the whole time in the family camp, because the family camp was set up uh, purely as camouflage because the SS were expecting the, uh, the Red Cross to pay a visitation to, they were going to visit Theresienstadt which was already designed as a sort of model camp to assuage the Red Cross that all was well, rumours about the final solution were of course gathering pace outside uh, German speaking areas and um, so the Red Cross were going to visit uh, Theresienstadt, but they also held out the expectation that they would pay a visit to one of the camps in Poland. And with this in mind, the SS leadership decided to retain this family camp in, in Auschwitz for a time. Once they realised that the Red Cross were not going to visit um, Auschwitz, that they were satisfied with what they'd seen in Theresienstadt, then it was straightforward. The camp for the first 5,000 uh, people who had been deported from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz were then um, immediately sent to the gas chambers. And in the September, I think it was, of 19, uh, July of 1944, then the entire camp was liquidated and everyone was sent to the gas chambers. Our very good friend here managed to escape by good chance on both occasions, the first time you might say what good chance he was suffering from diphtheria which was then almost felt to be, they thought it would be fatal but it turned out not to be of course uh, but he was sent to the camp hospital together with his mother the camp hospital run by of course the notorious Dr Mengele and Dov told me earlier on he saw Mengele on a daily basis in that period although not to get it to close terms with, um, thank goodness but it's in this period, this remarkable camp uh, this family camp in Auschwitz that strangely um, Jewish culture was preserved only a, a few hundred yards away from the gas chambers and the crematoria there was a thriving Jewish culture and it's at that point that I want to ask Dov to he wants to read out this passage and this passage is actually about Jewish culture a, hundred, a couple of hundred yards away from the gas chambers in the family camp in Auschwitz well, it was not only Jewish, it was universal uh, uh, heritage, European heritage, performed by mm. the Jews. So that uh, excerpt I will read is from the chapter called Ode to Joy. There were things that were quite extraordinary in that camp, which are part of my private mythology and have remained lodged in, uh, in some corner of my memory and flutter around there in one form or another. In the children's barracks, 
there was a choir conductor. His name, as I recall, was Imran. He organized a children's choir and we held rehearsals. The rehearsals almost always took place in one of the long halls, I mean one of the long barracks that were used as batteries for prisoners. Pipes with holes drilled into the running around the, uh, along uh, 15, 50 meters of the structure. That barracks had exceptional acoustics when there were no prisoners there, of course. In the morning or in the evening after the walk, it was packed with thousands, but during the day it was empty. There, in the four, four months, we arrived in September, in the fall and winter months of 1943, we had rehearsals. I remember mainly one work that we sang and I so remember the words. The words had to do with joy and uh, with brotherhood of man and they made no special uh, impression on me. And I'm sure I would be, uh, I will be forgotten. I, I will forget all these completely had it not been for another incident in which the experience and the melody and the text came back. About half a year later, when the camp no longer existed, when most of the prisoners were already had been cremated or sent as slaves across the German Reich, and only few few dozens of, of, of the youth remained and we had moved to the Melanaga, the, the large slave camp. At that time the harmonica somehow came into my possession. I learned to play it and I played things that entered my mind including one of the melodies we sang in the children's choir and it goes something like that. Do 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 and so on. I'm playing that memory in one of those rare moments of quiet and tranquility in that camp, and a young Jewish prisoner from Berlin came up to me. He was then a boy of eleven, and he says, "Do you know what you are playing?" And I tell him, "Look, what I'm playing is a melody we sang in that camp, that which no longer exists." He then explained to me what I was playing, and what we sang there, and the meaning of those words. I think also tried to explain the terrible absurdity of it. The terrible wonder of it, that a song of prize to joy and the brotherhood of man, Schiller's Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. 
was being played opposite the crematory of Auschwitz. A few hundred meters from the, that place of execution where the greatest conflagration ever experienced, but, but the same mankind that was uh, being sung about was going on at the very moment we were talking <coughs> and in the months we were there. When Shira Beethoven were identified, I began to ponder. And I pondered ever since the reasons and the meaning of that decision by the conductor, that Emil, who I remember as a, though it was today, as a large, awkward figure in a blue-gray prisoner's uniform and the big wooden shoes and the big hands of a conductor urging the choir, making come together and then loosening his hold. And we are singing like little angels. Our voices providing an accompaniment to the processions of people who were slowly swallowed up into the crematorium. <coughs> Naturally, the question I ask myself and that I go asking myself to this day is what drove that Imre? Not to organize the children's choir because after all one could say that in the spirit of that project of the educational center it was necessary somehow to, somehow to, to, to prevent sanity, somehow to keep occupied. But what he believed, what was his intention in choosing to perform that particular text, the text that is considered a universal manifesto of everyone who believes in human dignity, a humanistic values in the future facing, facing those crematoria in the place where the future was perhaps the only definite thing that did not exist. Was the kind of protest, a protest demonstration, absurd perhaps, perhaps so any purpose, but an attempt not to forsake and not to lose, not a belief, but the devotion to those values which ultimately only the flames could uh, put an end to. Only that fire, and not all that preceded it, ranging our, uh, around us. That is, as long as man breathes, he breathes freedom. Something like that. That's one possibility. A very fine one. But there is a second possibility, which is apparently far more likely, or may sometimes be called for. I would not say when I prefer the first every time inclined to the other. I refer to the possibility that this was an act of extreme sarcasm to the utmost possible limit of self-amusement of a person in control of naive beings and implanting in them naive values, sublime and wonderful values, all the while knowing that there is no point on purpose and no meaning to those values. In other words, that this was a kind of almost demonic self-amusement of playing melodies to accompany the flames that burned quietly day 
and night, and those processions being swallowed in the crematorium. The second notion seems more logical on the face of it. The first notion is very tempting to believe in. And maybe I believe, maybe I believe, maybe I, it influenced me, maybe it influenced a great deal of what I'm occupied with and believing. But there are many times that I think I bought an illusion and sell it in various ways. Because they abysmal, ultimate sarcasm, beyond any possible limit, could also be a criterion for less extreme variation of their reality, or a world where things do not proceed according to unreserved belief of Beethoven and Schiller, but Beethoven and Schiller, who were only the ones sung opposite the Auschwitz crematorium. That is, of course, part of my private mythology. I often come back to, to all that, and it also occupies me professionally. Even though I never mentioned that uh, episode directly, but when I come to interpret the continuity of the existence of social norms, of cultural and moral values, in the conditions that were created immediately upon the Nazi accession to power, and all the way to the brinks of the mass murder pits and the crematoria, here I am very often inclined, perhaps unconsciously, to choose the belief in that demonstration, a hopeless demonstration, but the only possible one uh, in that situation. Though I think that, as I said, that the illusion here is something sometimes more, far greater than the fierceness of the sarcasm, of the cynical amusement of, of, of one who was still able uh, to toy with it in the face of the mass death. That approach was perhaps more, I will not say realistic, but more authentic. The subject remains an open one for me. Like Imre's large arms, it opened to both sides and hung there. Whoever chooses the left or the right, or when I choose the left or the right, that is in fact the whole unfolding of my existence, of my confrontation both with the past and the present from then, from then until today. It's an extraordinary thing that, um, as you put it in the book, you just uh, read a sentence, under the shadow of the death sentence of the entire community, these cultural, European cultural traditions were upheld and sustained and whichever interpretation you put upon it, nonetheless the ode to joy was sung in, 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 this, in the family camp. Um, and you say there that in, in that family camp historical, function, functional and normative values and patterns of life were transformed into the order of absolute values. Perhaps we'll come back to that in a little while, but uh, 
I just want to ask you a sort of banal question, but an obvious question, if, if you can recollect. Um, Ten-year-old boy comes into this family camp then in 1943. What were your feelings when you entered Auschwitz initially? Were you aware of what, what it was or what was going on straight away? A short time after we arrived, we got uh, the messages of the old prisoners there, and they explained to, to us uh, the truth about Auschwitz, what's going on. But they didn't understand why we have been spared. And uh, we believed. We believed that, that something very different happened to us. And after six months, the whole first group was annihilated. Then, a short time before, another group came. And we understood that we have six months to live. And we could count the days and the hours. It was amazing in that situation that the teachers and the, the, the youth, the, the children, went on like there was no, 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 no absolute uh, uh, non-awareness of that situation in which we were all sentenced to death. And we children, or young boys, took that opportunity to, to somehow live with this, this, this knowledge, this awareness, and try to confront, uh, confront it even in a, in a satirical cabaret, uh, playing Auschwitz uh, on the earth and Auschwitz on height. And uh, we performed a, a play in which in Auschwitz of height there, was crema there were crematoria, there were selection. That, that was one, one way we confronted uh, that situation. But of course, uh, my, my uh, experiences were, um, I would say, it, it was ch a child's mind in which I, I remembered, I, 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 I internalized all, the, all that. But I choose, after the war, I choose not, not, not to, not to deal any, any more with this uh, memory. I'd like to come on to that, but just before I do, could you just, for a minute or two, maybe people here don't know you as well as I do, and so on, and it would be quite interesting, just for a minute or two, you could sketch in very rapidly for us 
your family background and a little bit about your upbringing in Czechoslovakia before you were shipped off to Theresienstadt and then Auschwitz before and even before the, the Nazis arrived on the scene in Czechoslovakia. Yes, so I was born in bilingual culture, Czech and German. And after the occupation of Czechoslovakia and even uh, before, after the humiliation and betrayal that, that, that this nation felt, accused the Jews that they supported German culture. And I was, uh, it was impossible to me to, to, to live among the children the Czech and the Germans who persecuted me violently. And I fled to, to, to the garden and the, the, the library of my parents and was isolated. And strangely enough, after uh, we had been deported in that ghetto of Theresienstadt, I was relieved from this isolation. And I found uh, uh, some 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 uh, uh, redemption, I would call it, in 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 a in a milieu of of, of uh, young uh, children people there. So for me, this detention in the ghetto was really uh, something that that I I I was freed from the persecution. But then, the persecution. But then uh, came the deportation to Auschwitz, and my mother and me. My, my father was was uh, uh, imprisoned immediately after the, the Germans occupied Czechoslovakia, and went through several uh, concentration camps. And my mother and me, we we, we volunteered even. To, to, to be sent to, to Auschwitz because all the, the other family members were there. And in Auschwitz, in that very special camp, it went like in, like in Theresienstadt. It, it, the, the, the teachers uh, went uh, on with um, uh, and, 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 and uh, the, the, uh, our Educators went on with, with, with uh, going on like there was there were no crematoria no 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 uh, uh, mass dead, but we all were aware of it very clearly, and that was the particular and very strange situation which came back to me when I started to record uh, my, my, my uh, memories, if you wish to, my, my reflections on it. But this was reflections of a historian. It was not, not, not uh, remembering the uh, situation uh, as such. Because I, I, I turned 
to explore Nazi Germany and the fate of the Jews in a scholarly way. And I, 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 I cut myself almost entirely of these uh, impressions, experiences, and not for a very long time. I, we, we met 30 years ago this year. Um, I think in Harvard, yeah. uh, when I was giving a talk there, and Dov was in the audience, and we had a scholarly disagreement anyway about uh, which went I, on. For I, quite I a, chat this, this yeah, quite a long time, but um, the the um, but it was must have been at least ten or fifteen years after that that Dov first of all told me that he'd been in Auschwitz. So it's astonishing that he kept our conversation going for so long without me knowing this, and then he told me to my. Uh, enormous surprise that he never mentioned to any of his students that he'd been in Auschwitz. So he treated the history of Nazi Germany and the persecution of the Jews as if he were dealing with the French Revolution or the Renaissance or something. It was dealt with in terms of scholarly apparatus and, and so on. And yet you do say at, um, at, at some point uh, in, I don't know, I said the book or somewhere else that you read, that history does always contain subjective elements. So it was a conscious choice on your part to exclude subjective elements, although yes. you might use memoir material and other things. Why did you make this conscious choice then to sever the, the scholarly and the what you call your non-scholarly work, your extra-scholarly work, so rigorously? And why, um, more importantly perhaps for this current book, why did you make the decision then after so many years of silence, of keeping secret or confidential this private mythology, as you call it, why then did you make the decision to publish it? Because now, of course, you're going to be known all over the world for your private mythology. There's a sort of um, irony in that, in a sense, that all at once now you've opened Pandora's box and it can't be put back in again, so your private mythology is now public. Um, but at some point you decided to make it, to make it uh, public and to... Um, break this private taboo you had, but at the same time you're keeping completely separate than the scholarly and the non, what you call this non-scholarly work. Well, I started my studies in a very, very remote uh, edge, starting with philosophy and ancient history. You know, later I came to deal with modern and teach modern Jewish history from the 16th to the 20th century, and only and, and a few years later, I started to explore Nazi Germany and the fate of the Jews. But I, I regarded it illegitimate to, uh, to intertwine my personal uh, experience and the strict scholarly way. To try to understand the ideology of, Nazi, of, of, of and the politics of Nazi regime. Well, I've studied uh, the, uh, in the same way that Ian studied the attitudes of German population, which, which occupied me for, for many years, and I published on this uh, uh, very, very, uh, 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 I would say um, uh, um, inclusive uh, uh, projects uh, 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 
of, 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 of uh, sources and interpretation. And I have studied the Jewish uh, history, the continuity of Jewish history at that time. So it was just three areas because the historiography. When I came to the, the, the I began to 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 deal with it was one-dimensional. They did it mainly the German historiography. It was the history of persecution and annihilation, the final solution. And I tried to approach this this period like, as you mentioned, any other period. In those three dimensions, yeah, the, the, ideology, the ideology, the, the, the society, the surrounding society, and the Jewish society. And only constructing or reaching a comprehensive, uh, comprehensive view of that history, that period, the question that was uh, much discussed of the uniqueness of this uh, period, of this historical event, unprecedented historical event, could be discussed and not a priori before uh, trying to understand it in, uh, with the tools <coughs> of a historian. So I disregarded completely my personal, uh, uh, my personal memory. And uh, you may ask, where was Auschwitz in all that time? Well, it was in my diaries and in the <coughs> dreams. And three of the chapters in that book other dreams, which I, I, I described in my diaries. The other ten chapters were recordings, were tape recordings, which I started very late and not on my, my initiative. But as you mentioned, I kept, it was my personal need. I, I, I didn't intend to publish them. I wished to, to leave them after I, I, I leave, leave this world. But at a certain point, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I was told uh, I have two or three years uh, to live and to, 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 to make decisions. I've decided to transcribe those, those tape recordings and to prepare them to be left after I will uh, part from this world. And I, I, I was cured then, then, then but the, 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 the decision was al already made. And since then, I prayed with the, 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 the Told whether those uh, those recordings will be understood, will talk to the people, and I asked one of my colleagues, uh, 
the famous historian Saul Friedlander, who uh, published his memories. And uh, he heard uh, parts, the first parts of, of those, those uh, tape recordings. And he was stunned. And he, he told me, you, you, you have to publish it. I don't, I don't want to mix uh, my personal <coughs> memories with the, the, the with, uh, our research. But I am part of it, part of the, the, the community of researchers. And only after I've completed several projects, scholarly projects, the last one, 2010, it appeared in English on, on the popular opinion of German uh, population of the German society towards the, 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 the uh, policy of the regime and towards the Jews, I allowed myself to think about the publication. And Ian was one of those who <laughs> took the opportunity and, and tried to persuade me to do it. And that's what I have done uh, and just a year ago. And uh, uh, Ian uh, um, encouraged me to uh, let the, the, the manuscript um, to read with, with uh, the, the wonderful person, the, the, the <coughs> chief the, the editor of Penguin Press. And in one day, he proposed to me to publish it and to, to purchase the rights. In a few months, it was uh, uh, taken over by many other publishers, mainly in Europe, but then in, in, in the US. And the Hebrew or original, I didn't publish yet. It will appear after the first editions of the book, the, 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 the English, the French, the, the German, already appeared. I'm dealing now with the addition of those Hebrew uh, um, uh, recordings, uh, which I have translated to, to the, or worked on with my translator to English. And uh, that was the first step to bring them, to, to make them accessible to the public. But of course, I, I will return to, to my scholarly work. I took just one year off from the scholarly work. Well, let's come back to that if we have a minute uh, at the end, but uh, as to where you're going from here. But the, it, if, we, if we actually look in, in, the, in the book, I mean, so one of the remarkable things about this remarkable book is, is actually the language you use there, and the, you speak a, a lot about uh, about metaphors uh, in the book, about your private mythology, you you have a, a 
a structure for the book which is deliberately broken up and fragmented. It doesn't follow a clear chronological pattern nor a clear narrative. And this adds to the uh, really moving and dramatic nature of the book. The language is unusual, though. You speak about, say, private mythology, but you also talk about the immutable law of death, the great death, the metropolis of death, and so on, and about hidden meaning. And you say that your this book is beyond historical explanation, that it reaches beyond, also reaches beyond the experience of the world of Auschwitz, that it's a metaphor for a world order uh, that would change human history and that the, te the text transcend the sphere of history. These are quite complicated ideas and I wonder if, if you can, it's asking a lot to summarise them briefly, but we, we've not got a vast amount of time. And can you actually say what this um, transcending of human history is that the metaphor is aiming to get at and what, what it is that you're, this that the metaphor element of, of the work is trying to convey to someone beyond yourself. You've yeah. got your own mythology, but we are now being invited to come into it. And um, is it something that's elemental in the experience of Auschwitz that historical explanation, conventional historical explanation can got, not get at, that it's something that you've got to be in there to have experienced this? And that this gives you an insight into a transcending of world order that you can't simply get at through techniques of historical methodology. Yes. So I experienced Auschwitz. It entered my, my memory um, in the mind of a, of, 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 a, of a child. But when I came to reflect on it, I already was a historian. And those metaphors, the great dead, the inalterable law of the dead, actually represented something which I did reach in my, my, my scholarly work, but it was something quite different, combining with those those uh, experiences, and for that reason, I I, I choose <coughs> this metaphorical language, and I, I I understood that Auschwitz was an epitome of the what the, the ideology and politics of the regime, of the the, the, the ideology that should change the course of human history. Uh, regarding the, the, the Jewish uh, menace, uh, the, the, the Jewish threat, uh, they regarded, uh, they, they understood it as a source of uh, universalist ideologies of unity of the world and equality of, the, uh, of men. Which, which went into Nazi ideology, went uh, transformed into Christianity, and then into into a democracy, and and, and 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 socialism, and it was diametrically opposed to the uh, uh, ideology of, of of inequality of the races and eternal uh, <coughs> eternal um, struggle. 
of the fittest. So the ideology that wanted to return the course of human history to what they called natural order, natural cassettes. And that was the, the confrontation with uh, the Jewish spirit ethic. And I gave these uh, insights for, for trying to understand the history. Uh, this very, 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 very unique, I would say, unique uh, for me, uh, anything, uh, anyway, metaphorical language in which you don't have to explain all that. Uh, and you, you uh, I, I, I experienced it always. We experienced that, that what's going on there is something which, which has significance for the, the world. And we understood it even as being, being youngsters. And when I came to study that period, I developed this thinking which combined the, 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 the direct uh, experiences with the meaning of history I, I, I saw in them. That is in short the explanation of, of if, if I talk in the language of the book, of inexplicable history. Yes. But we as historians, we have to to, 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 to to, to, to give answers. In the book, I've opened, answers, uh, opened questions, and I left the questions open. So it was a kind of luxury, but as, I could, as a historian, but it was my personal uh, belief that things we have experienced uh, uh, happening around us have their significance beyond that. And in <coughs> what I tried in this book is to combine those two dimensions of my experience and of my existence, I would say so. I know that you want to um, do two other things before we finish this part, and there's at least one other um, question that I want to ask you before we before we open it up. But um, one of the things you want to um, do is to read a short extract about the blue skies that we've seen above Ashes, and this is again another extraordinary element of this that that you one of your lasting memories is alongside the, um, the Ode to Joy and so on, is of the beauty of the skies above Auschwitz. And, and you, you've never seen skies as beautiful. And so what you say in, in, in the book is that, uh, on the one hand, you talk about the immutable law of death, but you also talk about beauty as also being an immutable law. And the blue skies are one sign of that immutable law of beauty. So would you like to read out this passage from the, of the blue skies? Yes. I titled it, 
the blue skies of summer. It starts with another leap in time. The different landscape, the different colors. The color is blue, clear blue skies of summer. Silver colored toy aeroplanes carrying greetings from distant worlds pass slowly across the azure skies while around them explode what looked like white bubbles. The aeroplanes uh, pass by, by and the skies remain blue and lovely and far off, far off that clear summer distant blue hills as though not from this world make their present felt. That was the Auschwitz of then 11 years boy. And when this boy, the one who is now recording this recordings, is recording this and asking himself, as he asked himself many times, what was the most beautiful experience in your childhood? Landscapes, uh, um, what, 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 what uh, the most beautiful experience in your childhood landscapes was? Where do you escape in, in pursuit of, of, of beauty and the innocence of your childhood uh, landscapes? Then the answer is to those blue skies and silver aeroplanes those toys and the quiet and tranquility that seems to exist all around. Because I took in nothing but that beauty and those colors. And so they have remained imprinted in my memory. This contrast is an integral element of, 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 of the black columns that are swallowed up in the crematoria, the barbed, barbed wire fences that are uh, stretched tight all around by the concrete pillars. But in that experience, I, 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 all that seemingly did not exist, only in that background and not consciously. Consciousness has internalized and submerged the sensation of bold summer colors, of that immense space, of that Sadurian skies, the airplanes, and of the boy gazing, gazing on them and forgetting everything around him. There's no return to the metropolis, to that metropolis, the metropolis with its somber colors, with a sense of the immutable law that encloses all its beings within confines of a lot of time and of death. That, that, is, that there's almost no sense of return to that world without a sense of return to those wonderful colors, to that tranquil, magical, and beckoning experience of those blue skies of the summer of 1944, Auschwitz-Birkenau. I can search for great many similar experiences, perhaps from, from before Auschwitz, from before the expansion, in, in my earlier childhood, 
landscapes of childhood in Bohemia, green and bright, but they are pale. So too with later landscapes in Israel, landscapes of fiery colors under the blazing light of yellow and the blue. The blue of the sky in this, that, that, that land is many times stronger than any blue one can see or, or that I have seen elsewhere. But even so, the one is pale and blurred, that are strong and harsh, somehow does not belong. The only belonging blue, overcoming every other color imprinted in my memory. Uh, the color of summer, the color of tranquility, the color of momentary forgetting. Is that color of the Polish summer, 1944. And for that little boy, who is a part of that summer, all this will remain for all time a touchstone of beauty. Don't parry all the landscapes I have collected into my, myself, and which I probably be, will be able to collect, collect. How to put it, the praise for all time. I do not know how much long I have until that for a long time, but I have absolutely no doubt that to there I will always return. This return even if it's divorced from the somber return to, from which there is no way out, is itself return which has no way out. The color is a color of childhood, a color of innocence, a color of beauty. And this too is a mutable law from which there is no escape. There is no escape from beauty from the sense of beauty, at the height, in the midst of the great that which governs all. That's this experience. I really did want to ask you about, and that um, reminds me of it, to ask you about the influence of Kafka on your thinking, on your work. We are running short of time, and I know you want to go on to the look at the pictures, so I'll refrain from doing so, except to remark upon that Kafka, Kafka is everywhere in this, in this book. And um, now you just talk about the way out, no way out, and your book seems to me to end on this very bleak point, using the parable of the priest with, um, with um, Herr Josef K., and of course, Herr K., and um, you mentioned the word Kulka-esque at one point in, in the book, but where the parable of the priest and the, the priest comes to the closing of the gate, and the gate has been open all the time, and, he's, and now only K himself can go through the gate, and the gate will now be closed. And in a way, this no way out is it's Kafka's somewhat bleak conclusion in, in, in your private mythology, is it not? Yes. It was... Uh in, uh, on several levels. The one was uh, the, the, when I experienced this total alienation. I didn't take in uh, human suffering, individual suffering. I only understood what was going on and uh, somehow uh, made it 
to, to an, an experience of 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 of, of uh, a total estrangement of alienation. What what I was experiencing, but then I tried to read others' experiences, and I couldn't. Experiences works on Auschwitz, works on, on this period, works of art. When I started, all I felt was a, an alienation. It was not my memory, it was something different, totally different. And then I asked, what's wrong with me? Something is wrong with me, because everybody can read that. And at that time, it came to me if, that I found astonishing way out. It was this wonderful story of Kafka, of a man coming to the, 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 the gate of the law and asking to be, to be allowed to enter it. But the doorkeeper says, I can't let you in now. But you can wait, maybe you will, be, you will get that entrance later. And the man sitting all his life before the gate of the law. And his last question then was, the law to the, to the, the gate to the law should be open to everything. And the doorkeeper says, yes, it, uh, it's, that, that, that is uh, true. And he asked why nobody entered the gate of the law in all those years I'm sitting here. And it was his ask, last question that the doorkeeper explains, gives him the answer. This door was open only for you. And now I'm going to close it. And that way I could, could, could experience and I could talk about my, my very personal way, way, why I couldn't reach and could, could, uh, couldn't uh, take in any other, any, nobody's else description of that word. I understood that this gate I, I have recorded and I have now published in this book was just my way, the only way I could enter that gate, whether it will be accessible to others, it was not to me to judge it, but the publication of that book gave an answer to it. So I think the gate I've opened, I could enter it, will be accessible <coughs> to others who could enter it. Like Kafka, his own way, uh, experiencing word and, and describing word, a very precise description, but in the end, unexplicable.
was his own way. But others couldn't. And one of those was me. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think we um, have now approached the point where we have to end our private conversation of this private mythology and move on to a more general uh, discussion. I do know that one thing that we've not got around to doing through constraints of time is looking at some of the pictures. And this book itself is only about 100 pages, but I do think it's one of the most uh, extraordinary things I've ever read about the Holocaust. I've read lots of um, literature, uh, memoirs, and so on. But I think that this one will be one of the ones, one of the very few that go down along with, Pri with Primo Levi's book. It will be read in years and years and years to come, this, as, a, an, as an absolutely incredible, amazing uh, set of insights into Auschwitz. And the book is, the 100 pages or so have about 50 or so illustrations in them, and uh, many of them taken by Dobbs' own camera. And it was pointed out to him that there are very, very few people in these illustrations. So the sense of alienation that we've just been talking about now um, is also brought to bear in the pictures too. And I do know that he wanted to show you some of these pictures, but maybe we haven't got much time to do that, and James wants to have a general discussion. Just a few of them. Yes, absolutely. Uh, no. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yes, I was asked, I was not aware that I chose the pictures of the, those landscapes, they were humanness. There were no, 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 no uh, people there. And I was asked why uh, I, I chose those pictures. And my experience of Auschwitz was never of suffering of individuals. I could experience it only as an ex abstraction. And that's why I think I choose those, those humanness, uh, ruined humanness landscapes, and even pictures from that time, which were devoid of any human uh, beings. Because all the, 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 all the, the, the essence of Auschwitz was something, something that was behind human uh, dimension, the human, human uh, existence. What I, I, I was impressed and I, I understood as a child what, what, what entered my the, the, the child's mind and as a historian reflecting on it, that it was something beyond uh, individual human experience. Uh, of course, I, as an individual, I experienced it, but that was the, 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 the alien, the, the, the basic feeling of alienation. That was the only way to understand that great debt, that, that this rule, which is ruling not only Auschwitz, but that ideology and the politics of which Auschwitz was a, a epitome. 
and that's I think why I've chosen those pictures. I don't know whether, whether we have time to, to, to show well, it's, of it's your event, you can take questions or show pictures, it's entirely up to you. So, 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 read. Okay. Uh, you, you, you it's entirely your decision. <laughs> well, uh, so, I would like to. Could you please? And uh, you have the captions together with them. That was the picture I, 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 I took when I returned in 1978 to these vast uh, ruins from horizon to horizon. But I, I, I was surprised. I, I was looking for, for that place where, where, where we, we been lived and been educated. And that was uh, totally alienated. Uh, landscape of Auschwitz, of that place. That's another picture that's, that survived by, 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 by my photographing that. That, I don't have to, to explain. These were the stairs I went down and that was the place where all my friends and thousands of people went down and didn't come back. So I, I, I entered these this, this stairs up to the point where I could and came back and left Auschwitz. This is um, the, 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 the smokestacks of, of the, the crematorium. Humanness. This was but I took a humanness picture. It is a picture from that period that was preserved. Well, that was another experience I experienced in, on the Temple Mount at, in, in Jerusalem. That, 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 that uh, closed door, closed gate, according to which, to, to the legend, the Messiah should end it. And I experienced this, 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 the, uh, well, this, this, this place uh, uh, <coughs> with history. When I, I, I walked there and uh, Suddenly, saw a, a, a piece of, of barbed wire, barbed uh, uh, wire, and that moment, it brought me back to another place, charged with history, and I decided to return, not immediately. My 
I have decided to those landscapes, humanless landscapes. So that's one chapter. I, 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 that's the landscape we found immediately after the war. The, the, the grass growing wild, and that was the experience at the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem, which took me back to that. To that. <coughs> that picture, I have chosen it for the, ch for the chapter on the blue skies and the beauty I, 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 I took in and I didn't, uh, the planes were the planes of the, the airlines. And the, the, the toys I, I was looking at, the, 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 the airplanes which, which flew over and photographed this place. Here you, you see the, the, the crematorium. Here see, you, you see the barracks. Every single, single. Of course, and they went and, and so I choose this contrast to those blue skies and the reality seen from those blue skies. Well, it's a dream about Prague, my city, which I dreamt that, that, that I experienced uh, uh, time frozen in which I had to, to, to enter the, uh, the town hall, the Jewish town hall, which is taken from this, this, this uh, um, um, very, um, very, 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 uh, unusual, somber uh, angel, uh, angel. But but please go to, to the next picture. In that chapter, in that dream, it's a dream. I I I I, I, I wrote it down in my yeah, my my diary, and I have included them. The climate changed, the day changed, there, there was light, the, 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 the people went, uh, went in the, to the streets and somebody told me, Mr. Kulka, it, 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 everything, it, 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 it disappeared, it, it, it's gone. And I, 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 I didn't uh, understand what, 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 what she was a historian. What she was talking, I had to go to that town hall and it was clear to me that in that town hall is going on what went in the crematoria. And, then, 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 and I, 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 I'm sentenced to it and I have to, to, to go there. And I asked to, to get entrance. And that was the end of that dream. But I used these 
And the, uh, another dream was I entered in the dream the crematorium. And uh, this chapter deals with the presence of God in that, in the time when this crematorium was walking full speed. And I, I, I experience here that the presence of God suffering there. But for this decision, I, I, I used the, 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 the parable of the book of Job, Job, in which he gave this righteous uh, man in the hand of his, his, his dark, uh, a dark servant. And he couldn't, God couldn't, couldn't, couldn't change his, his, his decision. But the question that had been asked there, I, I, after, 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 after describing this, this, this uh, uh, dream, I went uh, um, thinking about it and tried to explain it. And the explanation came when my father, who was still living, asked a religious man who was there, why didn't you ask the question and do you have any answer? And he said, those questions should never be put, never, in the eternity. And I, I, I don't put this question, I, I leave it open. I'm not a religious man, but I'm not irreligious. So that was the dream I dreamt. And these answers are something which, 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 which we, we, we try to explain. But uh, after all, we can find out the reasons. Uh, the, 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 we can understand what was behind the, these mass executions. But at the end, I think we will not understand it. But that I can't say as a historian. I can say it as one who allowed himself to write in this metaphoric language of that book. Thank you. I think that's uh, an incredibly beautiful moment to end on. I'm afraid we, we don't have time to take questions. So if you do have a question, then that's an extra incentive to buy a copy of the book and come and get it signed, and perhaps you can put it to Professor Kolker in person. And I really would want to echo um, what Serene said about the book, that I do think it's a book that you need a copy of. I think it's going to be a significant book, uh, and, and read it, keep it at home, and lend it to others. Um, uh, I don't say that at the end of every public event. So uh, you can buy copies of the book um, outside in the, in the, the foyer, and then you'll be uh, led back in, and the books are going to be signed up here on the stage. So uh, it only remains for me to thank you all for coming and to ask you again to please join me in thanking Serene for his contribution this evening, but particularly um, Professor Kolker for all that he has shared with us this evening that's been so powerful and so frankly quite beautiful. Thank you.